If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. As we come back to our series through the Gospel of Luke, we come to arguably one of the most important passages not only in Luke, but in the entirety of the Bible. For here, we are given a description of Jesus' self-understanding. That is to say, this is who Jesus understood himself to be and his mission and what his mission was in this world. Today there are uh, essentially a unnumberable, an innumerable multiplicity of views on Jesus. And yet here we have from his own lips, this is who he says he is and why he came into this world. But more than that, we have here Jesus understanding his teaching of what his disciples were to be and how they were to live. And so for anyone interested in such things, we have a text that is inescapable and demanding of our attention. Just to Put it back into the context of Luke having taken a week off. You'll remember just previous to this that Jesus was with his disciples trying to to get away, as it were, for a debriefing about their first mission trip, preaching and healing. He was seeking to be alone with his disciples, but the crowds kept coming to him. And therefore, in the midst of this uh, somewhat awkward situation, wanting to be alone, and yet finding the crowds coming, Jesus ministered to them and in fact performed one of the greatest miracles uh, that he ever performs in the Gospels, namely feeding thousands upon thousands of people beginning with just a few loaves and fish but now jesus obtains the quiet the aloneness that he is looking for with his disciples and something important takes place follow along as i begin reading in verse 18 luke says now it happened that as jesus was praying alone the disciples were with him and he asked them who do the crowds say that i am and they answered john the baptist but others say elijah And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his word. From these verses, we see what is really the essence of Christianity itself. So this morning, you may be wondering what it's all about. And therefore, this passage is for you. You might be here as a seasoned veteran and yet need a refresher course. You need a reminder of what it's all about. And so this passage is for you. Three Paragraphs three main points we want to see this morning. It begins with the confession of Jesus' identity. The confession of Jesus' identity. Luke begins by telling us that it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And later he would ask the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? For Luke's gospel, this is a key 
question. It is an essential question. It is the question that Luke has been trying to get to from uh, the first word in his gospel. Now, the, Jesus really asked this of his disciples. It's a, it's a historical event, but Luke also intends for it to be something more than that. He intends for it to be a living question that every reader from Theophilus to us today who would open up his gospel and glance our eyes across these verses that we would hear Jesus say, who do you say that I am? And feel him asking that question of ourselves. Notice how that question is framed. He says that Jesus was praying. Prayer is an important theme that runs throughout Luke's gospel. Just think for a minute about how we've seen Jesus praying in this gospel up to this point. Before Jesus is tempted and tried by Satan, ultimately triumphing over him, we see he prays. Before Jesus names and calls to himself the twelve disciples, he prays. Before Jesus miraculously miraculously feeds the crowd of thousands with a few fish and loaves, he prays. Now again, Luke is not making this up. Jesus really did pray at each of those things. But unlike some of the other Gospels, Luke is putting this in our minds. He is emphasizing this. He is highlighting this to us. It is his way of saying, look, Jesus is praying something important is about to happen. Look, Jesus is praying God is about to do something amazing. And so when we see, and Jesus was praying, we should, we should kind of sit forward on the edge of our seats, as it were. We should, we should put on our reading glasses and bring it up close and look intently because God is about to do something great through His Son. This is all the more so as we see this confession of Jesus' identity. And first we see the nature of this confession. Namely, that Jesus is the revealed Christ. That Jesus is the revealed Christ. Jesus is with his disciples. He's praying. And when he's done, he asks them these questions. Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is the Christ of God. That is God's promised Messiah. And just in case it's not clear here, when Matthew tells a story in his gospel, he, he adds an extra word that Jesus said here that Luke doesn't record. Namely, I'm paraphrasing here, Peter, you answered well, but don't get a big head because God's the one who revealed this to you. God's the one who enabled you to understand that I am the Christ and therefore to answer correctly. And so as we think about that, there is uh, just a few pages in David Helm's incredibly helpful little book, One-to-One Bible Reading, who points out that the, the Gospels and Acts, all throughout here, people almost always come to a deeper knowledge of Jesus as the Christ as a result of prayer. Think about that. People come to a better understanding, a deeper understanding of Christ as a result of prayer. You can go through and and look at that this afternoon if you want, all the Gospels and Acts. I'm sure you've got time for that. But right here, let me give you a few examples. John 11. After Lazarus has died, Jesus is standing outside the tomb, and he prays. What does he pray? He says, God, I pray that they would know that you have sent me. Then what does he do? He calls a man back to life. He tells Lazarus, get up and come out of the tomb. And what does John say? Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Back in Luke chapter 3, people are coming out to be baptized by John. Jesus is baptized. And Luke says, after he was baptized, Jesus began praying. And while he was praying, God spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. 
People have come seeking God, and what do they find? They find God telling them, this is my beloved Son in whom you should believe. It's in the context of prayer that unbelievers come to know he is the Son of God. And it's in the context here that Peter comes to rightly confess Jesus as the Christ in the context of prayer. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that people only come to a deeper knowledge of God, or at least very often come to a deeper knowledge of God in the context of prayer? Well, Paul explains it later in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. The God of this world, that's little g God, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, when we come into this world, we are blinded by the prince of darkness. We are blinded by the God of this age. But when the gospel is proclaimed, when Jesus is held out, then God is the one who opens blind eyes. And he continues to do that even today as the gospel is spread. This is why prayer and an understanding of Christ must come together when the Bible is proclaimed. We can see who Jesus is in the scriptures, but unless God supernaturally gives us eyes to see, we will never come to see Jesus as the Christ. This is why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we study the facts, but the Spirit reveals the truth and grants faith. And it's the nature of all true believers and their confession of Christ. It doesn't come by clever insights. It comes by God opening blind eyes by His Spirit. That means it comes by His grace. This is why even today, as we are sharing Christ, as we are preaching Christ, as we are preparing to tell others of Jesus, we should be in prayer. What should our prayer be? Open blind eyes. Open God. Open blind eyes as only you can do. And that's what he did here. God, after they had observed Jesus' life and ministry and teaching, as they sought to study Jesus, God supernaturally opened their blind eyes that they could see he was the Christ. That's the nature of their confession here. It was revealed to them. But secondly, notice the content of their confession. Namely this, Jesus is not only the revealed Christ, he is also the promised Christ. He is the promised Christ. Who do the crowds say I am, Jesus asked. And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets of old. All of these answers are in many ways flattering to Jesus. They are a compliment to him. It shows how revered he is among the people of that day because all of those people were revered heroes of Israel. They were all great prophets of old. But Jesus is no mere prophet. Despite the reverence with which they're thinking about Jesus, it was not reverent enough. Because as Peter and the disciples rightly identified, he's not just a prophet, he is the promised Christ. That is, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. That promise goes back to a single word given from God in Genesis 3, that a son would one day come and reverse the curse brought into this world by our father Adam. Adam. 
And over time, that promise grew and began to be intertwined with all parts of the life of Israel. In other words, God gave them uh, bits and pieces uh, through various means, through various prophets throughout the years until we get to Jesus. And suddenly we see all of these strands not just moving out, but actually coming together into the person of Jesus, the son of Mary. So Christ would be the perfect son of David, an eternal king who would rule in righteousness over his people defeating their foes. Christ would be the perfect priest, not after Aaron, but after Melchizedek, bringing full and final atonement by offering a perfect sacrifice and a perfect temple with perfect blood. The Christ would be the perfect prophet like Moses, bringing though now a final word to God's people. Not simply having seen a glimpse of God on the rock, but as John tells us in chapter 1, as one having stood face to face with the Father, now coming with grace and truth for his people. Every hope, every longing of the old covenant came together in Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior of Israel and the world. Now the question is, the disciples understand all that. We, we can understand all that from the vantage point now that we have all of the scriptures. We're on this side of the cross and resurrection. The question is, when Peter says the Christ of God, is that what he understands? And the answer is no. No. He, he spoke better than he knew. And in fact, Jesus still needs to fill in the gaps, as it were, in their understanding. That's why we not only see the confession of Jesus' identity, but we also see, secondly, that the disciples needed to understand the cross in Jesus' mission. The cross in Jesus' mission. Notice at the end of verse 21, after Peter makes this right confession, he answers correctly, you are the Christ of God. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. They say, hey, what's that about? You answered right, and now you say, be quiet? Why is that? Well, it's because, again, they've rightly identified that Jesus is the Christ. The problem is they don't rightly understand who the Christ is going to be. That They have in their minds an unclear picture of who Jesus is, of what the Christ is. So to go and tell everybody, hey, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, is not going to be a good thing. Because they're going to be telling people something different than what he actually is. Remember that ever since the exile, the Jews had not been a free people. They had experienced slavery in Egypt. God had freed them by His grace through the Exodus. They had enjoyed the, the fruit of God's covenant blessings in the promised land, and yet because of their repeated, unrepented, nationwide sin, in accordance with His covenant promises, God cursed the land, He cursed the people, and He allowed an, another, another exile to occur, to occur, an exodus not into the land, but out of the land under the rule of foreign powers. And now, even though they've returned the land, they have still been subject to foreign powers up until this day. It's the Romans now. And the Jews wanted them out. They were repugnant Gentiles to the Jews. They had violated their temple and so many other things. They wanted them out of the land that had been promised to them by God. They wanted them out of their religious and national affairs. They wanted them out of their lives and they believed that Christ would do that. They believed that he would come as a military conqueror, that, that, that he would drive out the Gentiles from the land and reestablish the throne of David in a greater way than any that had ever come before. And just like David, that they would have a spiritual renewal under that leadership. But as Lincoln Duncan says, Jesus knew the Romans weren't the problem. The Romans weren't the problem. We're all the problem. 
Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, oppressor and oppressed. We're all the problem. We are the problem. The line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them. It runs right down the center of every human heart. And that's why Jesus came not just as a conquering king, but as a dying savior. Jesus says, here's what the Christ is. He is the son of man who must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That is what the Christ is like. This is the essence of his ministry. This is why he came. All of the teachings, all of the miracles, all the talk about the kingdom, it all comes down to this, namely the cross of Christ. Everything leads up to or flows from Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus explains this in four things. First of all, he says that he will experience vast suffering. Vast suffering. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. Though the height of Jesus' suffering came on the cross, it was by no means the only thing that he suffered. Gossip and slander by being wrongly accused by his enemies, contempt of his own family, betrayal of his friends, the abuse of soldiers, an unjust trial, and even the ridicule of sinful criminals. Jesus suffered all of these things on his way to the cross. More specifically, he suffered a violent rejection. A violent rejection. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, who were these people? These were the de facto leaders in Israel. They were to know the scriptures. They should have recognized the Messiah when he came. And though individuals did recognize Jesus as the Christ, as a whole, these three groups rejected him. That word rejection, sadly enough, has actually a technical legal sense. It implies something that has been thoroughly investigated and found wanting. In other words, Jesus was intensely examined, yet rejected as the Christ, even though he was the Christ. And this rejection is not just a generic statement on Jesus' part. It's not just speaking to a mindset or a heart attitude in Luke 22, which we'll see in not a few months away. That right after Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he stands before Pilate, he stands before the Sanhedrin. He is put on trial by the Jews themselves. The question is, is he the Christ? Is he who he claimed to be? Who is there? The assembly, Luke tells us, of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priest and the scribes. Luke 22 tells us that all the shepherds of Israel are gathered together. And what do they do? They reject their king. They reject their great high priest. They reject the final and great prophet. They reject their Christ. They're supposed to be the leaders of Israel, but they are nothing more than blind guides, unable to see the fulfillment of God's promises in front of him. And that rejection is a violent one because they accuse him of blasphemy and therefore hand him over to the Romans demanding that he be crucified. And it's here on the cross that Christ experiences his vicarious death. His vicarious death. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed. You know, after President Lincoln was assassinated, his body was put aboard a train and it slowly traveled from Washington to Illinois where he was finally laid to rest in his, in his home state. But along the way, it stopped in several cities where people could come and to gather around and gaze at the body of that great man. And it's reported that when the train passed through Albany and the crowds were gathered to watch, literally thousands, that, that towards the back of the crowd, 
there was a black woman who stood up on a curb and lifted up her son as far as she could, holding him, at least trying to hold him above the heads of the crowds. And she was heard to say to this boy, take a long look, he died for you. Take a long look, he died for you. So it is with Christ, only more so. In overly simplified terms, Lincoln gave his life for an idea that all men were created equal and should be free. But Jesus did much more than that. As the Christ, he knew that all men were wickedly sinful and deserved an eternity under God's wrath. Because they had spurned the love of his heavenly Father, forsaking him for false gods. Yet in obedience to his Father, out of love for sinners, Jesus willingly died for him. He was not simply assassinated. He willingly went to the cross. He didn't die merely for the hope of salvation. He died to achieve salvation. How? Because his death was a vicarious one. That is, he died as a substitute. He died not for himself, but in the place of others. And this is the apex of his ministry. As he hangs on the cross, Jesus is, as it were, suspended between God and man. Dying in the place of sinners, receiving the wrath they deserve from God as he hung on the cross. Years before Luke would write his gospel, the apostle Paul would write to the believers in Thessalonica and remind them of Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath that we deserve for our sins, but he took instead. But he will also go on to remind them then to wait for Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus tells his disciples that he will experience various sufferings, resulting in a violent rejection while he will undergo a vicarious death. Yet soon after, they would see Jesus again because of his victorious resurrection. Because of his victorious resurrection. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. As a triumphant king conquering his enemies, so Jesus will and did rise again from the dead. That's what he is telling them. I'm going to die, but it's not the end. I will be raised back to life. I love how the church father, Cyril of Alexandria, once preached on this passage and how he described the resurrection. He said the resurrection of Christ was, quote, that great and glorious sign by which testimony is born him that the Emmanuel is truly God and by nature the Son of God the Father. He utterly abolished death and wiped out destruction. He robbed hell and overthrew the tyranny of the enemy. He took away the sin of the world, opened the gates above to the dwellers upon the earth and united earth to heaven. That's what Jesus accomplished in dying and being raised back from the dead. Now we stand back and we ask this question. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? If your answer does not include these four things that Jesus himself says he is and what he came to do, then your answer is less than Christian. Today it's very fashionable to, to not draw any lines and, and to have lots of, uh, lots of options under the rubric of what is Christianity. My point is not to, to, to bash other denominations, but my point is to say there is such a thing as orthodoxy. And though it is in popular culture heresy to say that, it is sinful to say that, there is such a thing as orthodoxy, and it starts here with Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. 
And so if you are here and, and, and you don't understand this to be Jesus, you must come to grips with the fact that this is who Jesus says he is. He says he has come to, to live and to be suffered, to experience suffering and to be rejected and to die and be raised back to life for you, for me, sinners who deserve so much more, so much more under the, the wrathful hand of God justly for our sin. And so I encourage you, listen to, to what Jesus says he is here to do and trust him. Trust him to be your savior, to bring you to God with forgiveness and cleansing of sin. Having believed that message though, how should we respond? What kind of life should be lived if we believe this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we've just seen and heard? Well, this is what Jesus explains for his disciples. It's the final thing that we see. We see the calling for Jesus' disciples. We see the calling for Jesus' disciples. Having explained the gospel, now Jesus applies the gospel. He begins by saying, if anyone would come after me. Now that's important. Because what it means is you cannot relegate the following verses to some class of super-Christian. You can't say, this just, this just applies to the really mature people. No. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, that means if anyone is going to, to, to come after me believing that I am their savior, if anyone is going to trust in me, if anyone's going to follow me, this is the expectation of their life. What is the expectation? Well, what he gives is the essentials of basic discipleship. This is, this is not some, some super level of attainment of maturity. This is the basics of how Jesus expects us to live as his people. What we see is, first of all, a call that is radical. We see a radical call. A radical call. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, those are familiar words to many Christians, but think about what it would have been like for, for Peter who just made this confession and the other disciples to hear this for the first time, they would have immediately recognized the imagery that Jesus is drawing from from this, namely that of condemned men. Like Jesus himself would one day be carrying their cross up a hill to be crucified, to be executed by the Romans as criminals. It would be like someone today saying, take up the rifles of your firing squad and follow me. Or come take up your electric chair and follow me. You immediately realize the imagery and you think, that sounds almost repulsive. You're, ask, you're asking me to, to, to kill myself in order to follow you? And Jesus is saying that. But maybe not in the, in the literal sense of what we think. Jesus is not necessarily saying that we go out and physically become martyrs for him, though it may mean that. Rather, what Jesus intends for people to learn is that they must die by denying themselves. By denying themselves. Now, to be honest, most of us hear that and we think we would rather he ask us to just go on and be killed for him. Because we are inherently a self-centered people. In, in our sin, we are out for ourselves. Other cultures, even our culture at other times, might be different. But this is very much the me generation. What's easiest for me? What's best for me? What's in it for me? That's how we think and live today. That, that's what drives our decision making about small things and about large things. 
Just this past week, I was talking with another pastor of one of our sister churches, and he was lamenting the fact. He was, he, he was actually contemplating leaving his church because of the great lethargy that has settled there. That he can, that he, that he can hardly find people to do any of the, the ministry opportunities that, that need to be done. Very simple things sometimes as well. Some have even seen church as just an optional thing. I, I may or may not be there this weekend. Do you have something going on to go out of town? Nah, I just may not be there. And, and he struggles with that. He, he needed someone to sit with, with two kids. Not teach a class, just sit with two kids during Sunday school. And out of 40 people, he couldn't find anyone who was willing to do it. There is a great lethargy, he says. There's a great spiritual dryness where everything is about them and not about Christ. The reality is, if we're honest, we can be that way sometimes too, can't we? Not just we collectively, generically, but we as Crossway Christian Church. Do you want to serve in a ministry and have to miss Sunday school or church? The answer sometimes comes back, often comes back, no. Do you want to get up early and come to pray? No. Do you want to skip movie night with your family to take a Christian across down for a job? No. Do you want to take time to invest in someone's life? It will require time and energy and preparation on your part, but it means growth and discipleship for them? No. Would you like to spend some extra money on gas to go visit someone in the hospital? No. Do you want to give up that last piece of pie? No. Am I wrong about this? No. Yet Matthew Henry is surely right when he says this, quote, self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. Self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. When we turn from sin to trust Christ as our Savior, the very first lesson he expects us to learn is deny yourself. Why? Because that's what he did in going to the cross. Self-denial is the means by which you become right with God. It is Christ setting aside His glory and the privileges of, of heaven that He deserves. That you might get something that you will never deserve. Forgiveness and life with God. And therefore He calls us to nothing less than what He Himself has done. And here's the thing though, that's a lesson that we continue to learn all of our lives. It's not just day one, okay, I've denied myself. What does Jesus say? Take up your cross daily. That means every morning we wake up and we have to say, I'm putting to death my sinful desires. I'm putting to death my personal preferences. I'm putting to death my dreams and aspirations if they are not in line with Jesus Christ and his lordship over me. Self-denial is at the very heart of Christian discipleship. You say, well, what does it really mean? Simply means it. Simply put, it means this. Christ is king and nothing else should be put in his place. Christ, tweet that today if you want. Christ is king and nothing else should be put in his place. That, that is the essence of what Jesus is telling us here. Be it sin, be it family, be it pleasures, be it preferences, be it power, be it life itself. Nothing should be so precious to us as Christ. Nothing should call for such allegiance in our life as Christ. What does that look like practically? What does it look like in the, in the everyday of life? What does it look like when life doesn't go the way we want it to? Many of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who has been a quadriplegic. She was in an accident at 18 years old. That was 46 years ago. She has lived 46 years as a quadriplegic, and yet she's also lived almost that long by faith in Jesus Christ. She has suffered on a daily basis pain 
and discomfort more than most of us will ever know. Yet here is what she says about learning to embrace these verses, about taking up her cross. She says this, I have learned that it's a passion for God that will give you a passion for people. And this utter delight in Him will come from the toughest of trials that you are about to face. Our afflictions become that which pushes and shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like Jesus in his death. Don't think the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The Christ, the cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Every day as our, as our eyes open, as they struggle with grogginess for our, to, to arouse our mind, as, as we take that first deep breath and we put our feet on the floor as we start to get out of bed, we have a decision to make. Am I going to live this day for myself? Or am I going to die to myself and live for God? This is the call of Christ on every disciple. On every disciple. It's not only a radical call, but listen, it's a rational call. It is a rational call. It may sound like the worst thing in the world. It may sound like the one thing we don't want to do. But Jesus said it's the most reasonable, rational thing you can ever imagine doing. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice the logic here. He, do you see he's telling you it's good for you to die to yourself for my sake? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, what difference does it make if the entire world is yours, but it costs you your very life? Now, he's not just talking about life in this world. He's talking about eternal life. All of us here, the, the, the moment that we were conceived in our mother's womb, the, the, the moment that, that God began knitting us together in, the, in his own image, we were born for eternity. You understand that. Every single person who's ever lived is going to spend eternity somewhere. It's either going to be in heaven with God as his children, or it's going to be in hell as rebels suffering his wrath. So the question is, are you going to give up even the whole world in this life for your eternal life in the future? Jesus says from an eternal perspective, that's not good math. That's not a good investment. That's not a good trade-off. But here's the thing. How often do we exchange our eternal souls, our life, for something far less significant than the entire world? For something far less big and powerful and meaningful? There's a striking scene towards the end of the film, A Man for All Seasons. That film is probably one of the greatest films that Hollywood has ever made. It's based on a historical event of Sir Thomas More's refusal as a leader in the church to support Henry VIII's marital infidelity as he desperately went through wife after wife searching for a woman who could bear him a son as heir. He wanted an official endorsement of the church for his divorces and his remarriage, but Sir Thomas More refused and therefore, Henry eventually put him on trial with false, false charges and sentenced him to death. His accomplice in this was a man named Richard Rich, who was given the entire kingdom of Wales for his testimony against Moore at court. After the testimony had been given, that it was obvious that Moore was going to be condemned to death, Moore was sitting in the dock 
and the man speaking against him rich came down to walk past him and more stopped him. And he reached up and grabbed the, the massive gold medallion that had been given to him by the king. It represented his authority to rule all of Wales. Moore holds on to that and he says, Dear Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. But for Wales? For Wales? And that question could be given to us today as well. If it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Are we really going to give ourselves over for a mere human relationship that we know is inappropriate? For sexual immorality? For prideful arrogance and gluttonous behavior and a refusal to to participate in ministry that should be an everyday part of our life? Is that what we're going to do? Most of us would agree that the world is not worth our soul but we often trade it for far less things. We think that we can escape the problems in this life by bowing down to things like a desire for reputation or for vast wealth or for love or for food or even for good works. But all of those so-called saviors, which we think will allow us to have an ease of life in this world, infinitely pale in comparison to Christ. For they cannot heal, they cannot save, nor can they ever satisfy. They cannot ease our conscience or alleviate our guilt. But Christ can, and He does, and He will forevermore. This is why it is so foolish to think we can ever give up. That we can ever, that we can ever give up that for something here. It is foolish to think that anything in this life is worth our eternal souls if it means we lose Christ in the process. He is our only hope. He is our only Savior. Now don't fall off the edge here. Don't make a mistake. Don't go away believing that denying ourselves and bearing our cross, that's what saves us. That's not what Jesus said. He said that He Himself would die on a cross He would do that for us. It is His cross. It is His death and only His death, only His cross that brings eternal salvation. When we bear our cross, when we die to ourselves, we are giving evidence to the fact that we are trusting Christ, that we love Christ, that Christ is the Lord over our lives and that He alone will be the one who calls us into the eternal kingdom of His heavenly Father. And it is in fact only by the grace of Christ the very spirit that he gives us when we believe that we are even able to take up the cross and follow him. So do not mistakenly think, okay, to be saved, I must deny myself. I must crucify myself. I must take up my cross and obey Jesus. No! No. It is in believing Jesus that we are then led to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow in obedience to him. And that brings us to the the final element here. Our calling as Jesus' disciples is radical, it's rational, but it also needs to be recognized. It's a recognized call. A recognized call. Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. Now what does it mean? Well, some people think it means you must bear public witness to be saved. That is to say that you must physically... Some would even say walk an aisle and and say something in front of a church to bear witness to Christ or else you're ashamed of Him and He will not save you. Well, part of the problem is there's lots of people that have come down an aisle and made a profession of faith and they're nowhere to be found in the church today. Are are they they saved or not? I think that certainly a public profession through things like baptism and communion and evangelism are implied, but it's bigger than that. What did Jesus just say in verse 23? 
that his disciples were to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean follow his example, though that's part of it. Remember what Jesus said after his death and resurrection, very well known by many Christians command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here's how we bear witness to Christ. Here's how we show that we are not ashamed of him. That is, we obey him in all things. So when the world looks at us and calls us intolerant, when it calls us prudes, when, when, it, when, it, when it says that we are insensitive and unloving and uncaring, that we are hateful and bigoted. First of all, we should stop and ask, are we those things? Have we taken, have we taken something cultural or traditional and moved it to something biblical? And if the answer is, no, we've not done that, then we persevere because we are bearing witness to the fact that we are not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel of his name. For it is the only way by which sinners can be saved. We are not ashamed of Christ's lordship. We are not ashamed to suffer and to be persecuted because of his sake. And therefore, what he is saying is that it is, in fact, an unashamedness that comes from a daily life of obedience, a daily death to ourselves, a daily living for him. That is how we are recognized as Jesus' disciples. So yes, our sexual ethic might be completely out of step with the rest of society around us. But here's what will bear witness to a world that we're not ashamed of Christ is that when we encounter those who are openly and obviously not in line with what we believe is God's plan for human sexuality, we still love them and we still serve them and we are still even polite to them in public. Yes, we may violently disagree with their lifestyle, but we also want the salvation of their souls. And that doesn't come by yelling in their face. That doesn't come by throwing a Bible at their head. It comes by saying, I think you're a sinner, but so am I. And I know a Savior who loves to save sinners. This morning, Jesus is asking us through his word the same question that he asked his disciples so many centuries ago. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the promised Savior from God? Your Savior? If so... Have you followed after him as he calls you to as one of his disciples? Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Have you followed him in all things? Here is the thing that we must remember in all of this. It is, it is a hard message. But something that was told to me in an offhanded pastoral counseling setting that I have since found to be true all throughout the, the scriptures is this. Where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. So if Christ is calling you to faith in him and to death to yourself, then guess what? He will provide you the grace to obey. He will provide you the power to obey. He will provide you the courage to obey. He will provide you the strength to obey. So this morning, look to Christ, believe he is the Christ, and follow him as the Christ. Father, that's my prayer this morning, not just for those listening, but for me as well. That, Father, we pray by your Spirit, those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord will live as if he is truly the Lord, the King over our lives. And, Father, if there are those here hearing this message that do not know you, then, God, we pray that you would open their blind eyes to see 
The hollow, though they may gain the world in this life, they will lose their very soul in the life to come. Unless they give themselves over to Christ, who has died for them, who was raised for them. Father, we pray that you would grant them faith and the grace that they need to live a life of unashamed obedience to your Son. God, may we all have that grace and may we give you the praise for it. We ask in the name of our King and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.